Uh, love to have you take out your Bibles and turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. Uh, Gary, it's the first time I've heard somebody uh, <clears throat> talk about discourses in relationships, so we'll have to hear more about uh, these, these discourses that you and Kay have. So. I, I did spend the first 20, like 23 years of my life in, uh, in Ohio. I have since repented, and uh, it, it, there are two seasons. Come on, go Buckeyes, right? Laid an egg yesterday. Um, yeah, there are two seasons in Ohio. Just for those of you who don't know, it's, it's sometimes good to be aware of other cultures and things. So in Ohio, there are two seasons. There's winter and road construction. So that's like, that's all there is. So it's good to, it's good to be in Kansas. Well, if you're turning to 1 John chapter 4, uh, this is actually week 7 in, uh, in this series called That You May Know. And uh, just have been exploring this, uh, this book, 1 John. And, I mean, John is not going to really say anything new from here on out. Um, John, his message is so beautifully simple. Believe in Jesus and love each other. Like, that, that's the essence um, of what his, his message is. Believe in Jesus and love each other. Let this love of God that, that is embodied in Jesus, receive it, and then just let it live through you. Let it sort of impact the way you, you treat each other, the way that you uh, see yourself, your own identity. Understand that you are loved, that you uh, are loved with a, a love from God that could not get any better. It could not be improved upon. That no matter, um, no matter how much you did, no matter how much your character improved, no matter how much you gave to the poor, no matter how much religious activities you did for the rest of your life, you could not be any more loved by God than you are right now in this moment. Um, and, and then just allow, just live in that sense of love and allow it to, to change the way you treat other people, you see other people, from, from your family to the, the person at the, you know, the checkout counter. And it might even lead you to not go through the self-checkout, but to actually interact with another human being um, and actually talk with somebody. So this is John's message. And so um, we're just going to keep, and, and what I hope is that as we, as we keep exploring, and this is week seven, we've got two more weeks, that it just keeps getting deeper and fuller and richer, and that as we look at the love of God expressed in Jesus, it's almost like this 360 view where you just sort of see it from, from different angles, and it just becomes all the more compelling. So that is my hope and prayer for this morning. So let's take a look at 1 John chapter 4, verse, uh, starting in verse 7, verse 7 to 21. Dear friends, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Now, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Let's sort of hold it there for a second. So John is saying, um, if, we, if we know God, God is love, and if we know God, it's going to change the way we love each other. Uh, and so if, he says, if you, if you live in this love, you know God. Like, you know what it means to be in relationship with God. But if you don't, if love isn't the thing that, that sort of gives life to your relationships with other people, you, you actually don't know God. Because this is who God is. And it changes us when we do know. So this is, verse 9, he goes on, he says, Now this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. 
Verse 10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So my sermon uh, title this morning is God's preemptive love. That, um, that love isn't something that we conjure up. It's not something that begins and originates in us, in our hearts, but it actually comes to us from God. That God moves toward us preemptively through the person of Jesus. Dear friends, verse 11, since God so loved us, we also then ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's beautiful, mind-blowing truth. Verse 13, now this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. So something of God, his spirit, has been put inside of us when we acknowledge him. And we have, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And if we acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, he, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. He says it again. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Verse 17. Now this is how his love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In the world we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Is that beautiful? There's no fear in this love, but when when we receive the perfect love of God, it pushes fear to the edges of our life. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God and yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. And and for whoever does not love their brother or sisters whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and sisters. So this is, this is John's message is sort of put on repeat. And it's, uh, it's simple and it's beautiful and it's compelling. And uh, I don't know about you, but I like, I need to hear it again and again and again. Um, that God's love, it is, it is preemptive. It comes to us before we're even ready for it, before we're ready to receive it. And it just keeps coming to us. John says this most beautiful and most profound thing. In fact, John names God. He says, God is love. Now, this is really rare for the scriptures to do, to say God is something. In fact, that sort of formula, God is blank, it only appears three times in the whole Bible. And two of, or four times actually, um, two of them in this passage, that God is love, that God's essence, God's nature, like God, love isn't just something God does, Love is God's essence, his, his very being. But there are um, two other places in the scriptures that say that God is, uh, in 1 John chapter 1, it says God is light. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, it says God is a consuming fire. So God is love, God is light, and God is a consuming fire. And that Hebrews twelve twenty nine passage is actually a throwback to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 26. So, what do we do with that? God is love. God is love. God is light. God is a consuming fire. Well, I think there's some danger in us talking about God is love in that one of the dangers is that we will sort of take 
our understanding of love that we experience among us and in our culture, and we'll say, well, this is what Ed Sheeran says love is. Um, or James Taylor, for those of you who are a little, little, little older, a little more dated. Um, it, we'll just take like what, what we feel like love is, and we'll superimpose that onto God. That must be what God is like. That If God is love, this is how we experience love, so that's what God's love is like. And, and this, is, this can be really problematic. That, that what ends up happening is sometimes we make God in our own image. We take our ideas of what God should be like, and we, we put that onto God. When in reality, we have the gift of Jesus who, who gave flesh and blood to what love is. And so we allow God to define love for us through the example of Christ. Does that make sense? So we have to do our best, and we can never completely step aside from our cultural understanding, but we do our best to own it, to name it, to say, here, here's, here are my preconceived ideas about love, and I want to name them and own them and say, God, are you challenging this in any way? Can we do that? So, one of the things that I think is, like, as we talk about God is love, one of the, the, the ways that this gets played a lot in our culture, love is, is, is one of those hashtag words, um, and it's, it's sort of all over the place, and it's, it's it, in some ways it's beautiful, um, but I wonder if it's exactly what God expresses himself as. Like, the phrase love wins, how many of you have heard that? It may have a bumper sticker or a t-shirt that says love wins. Um, it's this beautiful truth that love is the grain of God's world. I mean, the grain of God's world is love, is God communicating worth and value to every human being. And, and it's this amazing truth that says that in the end, all of the hatred, all of the violence, all of the oppression, all of the ways we hurt each other, that it'll all be washed clean in the love of God. I mean, that's beautiful, right? We completely affirm that. But what can, I'm, I'm curious sometimes if that's exactly what we mean when we say love wins. Um, because, like we talked about a few weeks ago, culturally, right now, we have made the idea of tolerance the very highest virtue. Remember us talking about that? Like, we, we've kind of said tolerance is the best we can do. It's the highest virtue. And uh, we use this word... Um, James Brenneman was actually the one who coined this word, called it whateverism. What happens is then we create relationships that are just based on whateverism. Hey, whatever you want to do is good for you. Whatever I'm going to do is good for me. And we all just sort of like, you know, it's this one big happy, happy sort of live and let live kind of relationship. And there, there's never room in that. If that's our definition of love, it's this kind of whateverism. And whatever you choose to do, I'm just going to affirm. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to say, yes, good for you. Cheer you on. Um, if that's what love is, then we just say, well, that must be what God is like to us. And, um, and there's never room then to say, because like, we love each other and it's mutual and we're, we're, we have this trusting relationship, that I need you to actually shine some light in my life where there's darkness. If, if our understanding of love is like, no, 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 you just affirm then there's no room for that. There's no space for that. Now, I have a daughter who's like, we have two girls, and, and they're so different from one another. It's crazy. Um, but my nine-year-old, she is like the most tender, compassionate, and, and kind of passive young lady. And, and my seven-year-old, she is, she is wonderfully loving and sensitive, and she is also 
very assertive. You know where she stands on things. And I wish that we could just sort of like trade. I mean, just like a little bit of like the the tenderness and a little bit of the assertiveness and just sort of share it with each other. And maybe that'll happen over time. Maybe some of you parents have have tricks on how to do this. Um, Because like my nine-year-old, she'll go to school and she'll, she'll get walked on. I mean, and it's really concerning as parents. Like, she'll just sort of, um, she'll, she'll kind of get pushed around, and she'll just kind of go with, with um, what her friends are telling her to do rather than, you know, what she really wants to do. And we process this, and we say, like, hey, it's okay to be assertive. It's okay to say, like, it's not, I don't want to do that. It's not okay for you to, to, to do that, to eat. Somebody ate her, part of her lunch the other day. And it's like, well, if you want to give it to them, that's great. But did you want that? Yeah, well, then it's okay to say no, right? I mean, there's this, like, she has to learn this assertiveness. And, but she feels like, she feels like sometimes, that, well, that's not loving if I do that, right? So there's this definition of love that is just you soft pedal everything. And I don't think that's what the Bible says God does to us. That God just affirms everything about us. Because God is love, but God is light, and that light exposes, and God is a consuming fire. And that consuming fire is there to sort of purge those places of darkness and sin inside of us. And so uh, this is what John Stott says about this. God is light, God is fire, and God is love. Far from condoning our sin, his love has found a way to expose it. Do you hear that? It's love that motivates God's desire to shine his light on our sin, to expose it, and then to consume it because he is fire. All of this without destroying the sinner, but rather saving him or saving her. It's all motivated by God is love, and everything God does comes, it emanates from his love, his very being. Does that make sense? Then this creates room in our lives to say, because we trust each other, because we're in relationship, that you have the right to be able to say, like, Eric, would you tell me about this thing? Like, I, help me understand, like, where this thing is coming from, your, um, these, these things that you said, or this thing that you're doing, like, and we, there can be some loving confrontation because we want the best for each other. We want the very best for each other, but it has to be done in a trusting, loving relationship. So, we let God define love. Now, how does God do that? And John points to a couple different ways. This is how he showed his love among us. This is a phrase he uses. He uses it several times. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his son, his one and only son, he sent him that we might live through him, and um, he sent him to make us unafraid to take care of fear. So let's just kind of walk through these real quick. God showed his love by sending his son. God is a sending God. Um, throughout the scriptures, like this is a theme, like this is how God's love is expressed, is he sends people, he sends messengers, he sends prophets, he sends ordinary people like us, calls us and sends us into the world to be a part of his purpose. All throughout the scriptures, the scriptures you could say are a story of God calling and sending people to join him in his work. And, and if that's what God does, God is a sending God. When we receive this love, do you know what that's going to do for us? It's going to mean we start to see ourselves as ones who are sent. Uh, were you in here for the story from the journey this morning? Jeff Kaufman from McPherson campus, lives in Bueller. Um, he's in Forge right now, Forge, Central Kansas, which if you're interested in checking that out, um, this Friday uh, we have a, a, a deal here where you can come and, and 
it's a six-month internship, so super cool. So Jeff has, has started to see himself as one sent by God, and it's changed the way he lives in his neighborhood. You know, put out a basketball hoop and put basketballs out and let the neighbor kids come and ask him to move his car. And it's like, we talk sometimes in the church about doing random acts of kindness. Uh, you can do random acts of kindness, but do intentional acts of kindness. Like, he got a gym membership so that he could interact with people who he otherwise wouldn't interact with. Why? Because he has been sent by God to his community to just share love. How is it that God is sending you, that this love that he sent through Jesus is impacting our hearts and God is sending you to say, see your neighborhood differently. See your community differently. See your gym membership. Maybe take the earbuds out, like when you're at the gym. Stop looking at yourself in the mirror all the time, right? And we know you're diesel, all right? It's great, but talk to people. You're sent by God. Um, so God, this is what God does. God is a sending God. It says he sent his one and only son. His one and only son. Um, this phrase, one and only son, is used one other place in the scriptures. In reference to Abraham and Isaac. So this is super cool. Like there are some times like when I, like I'm studying scripture and like stuff is just like light bulb, right? I've never seen this before and I love this. Like the way I, like worship for me is when like you see things in scripture and it's like the spirit sort of reveals stuff and it's like, God, this is so cool. So this is one of those things that's so cool. Um, I hope you share my enthusiasm. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. So something about God sending his one and only son, John says, is actually a callback to much earlier in the story to Abraham being willing to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Now this story is found in Genesis 22. You can take time to turn there if you want to. But uh, I'll just sort of tell it to you. Genesis 22, God calls to Abraham. Now remember who Abraham was. He was the father of faith. God calls Abraham and Sarah, and he says, through you, I'm going to do a miraculous thing, and I'm going to give you a child in your old age, or like 75 years old, and I'm going to give you a child in your old age, and then um, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. I'm going to redeem and restore the whole world through your family. I'm going to make you into the, a nation, a, a people group, and I'm going to like bless you, and people are going to see the way I interact with you, God says, and it's going to change the world. And so this is Abraham's call. So he has one son, Isaac. And God calls to Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love. And by the way, this is the first time the word love is used in the Bible. You know that? First time the word love is used is in Abraham to his relationship to his one and only son. And one of the cool things about the Bible is the first mention sets the tone for what the word means throughout the rest of the scriptures. So you think love, you think Abraham, one and only son, this son whom he loves. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to travel a three days journey to the region of Moriah, to the region of Moriah. And I want you to go there and I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, I need to be honest. So this was one of the passages that I struggled with significantly. Um, one of those passages where, where it's just like, God, you asked Abraham to do what? To sacrifice your son. And Abraham, he, he says, okay. And he, he takes Isaac. And do you know how old Isaac is at this point? He's in his late teens. Any of you 17? Raise your hand if you're like 17 to 20. 
around the room. It's, it's about how old Isaac was. So you don't think like tiny little child. Think, I mean, he, he's, he's a man, right? He's a, he's a man. <laughs> In fact, um, while we call this story the testing of Abraham, Jews call it the binding of Isaac. Said it's a lot more about Isaac and his obedience, his willingness. So they're traveling three days' journey to the region of Moriah. Do you know where Moriah was? It was where Jerusalem was built. And outside Jerusalem, there was this mountain, this hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And so Abraham and Isaac, as you maybe know that from another story, he, they go and they go up this, this hill, and um, make, Abraham makes an altar, and Isaac had been carrying the wood on his own shoulders for this sacrifice. And Isaac carries the wood, and he they place it on the altar. And um, Isaac asks, or asks his dad, says, "Dad, like, where's the, where's the lamb we're going to sacrifice?" And he says, Abraham says, sort of prophetically, he says, "God will provide the lamb." So they are there, and who knows how that conversation went when Abraham says, "Isaac, I need you to get on the altar." Right? We're not given details about how all that went, but Isaac ends up getting on the altar. He's bound. Abraham's in his late 90s. It's not like he overpowered his 19-year-old son. He got on the altar, and Abraham is there, and he raises the knife, and he's about to slay his son when an angel from heaven calls out and says, Abraham, stop. Do not lay a hand on the boy. And Abraham stops, and he looks up, and in this thorn bush he sees a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. And he goes and he takes the ram and he sacrifices it. And again, this is one of those stories like, how in the world would God ask Abraham to do this of Isaac? And why would Isaac be willing to go along with it? And like what I have come to in this is to say God was challenging the idea of human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is an idea that sounds so terrible, so horrendous to us that it, turn, it should turn our stomach to think about it. And yet in Abraham's day, it was the norm. In Abraham's day, everybody had this image of God that God, the gods are angry. The gods need to be appeased. They're bloodthirsty. And so what you would do in order to appease the gods is you would bring sacrifices. You would bring some of your crops or you would bring one of your animals. Or if you like wanted to really show God how serious you were, you would bring your firstborn child and sacrifice them. And God, as a way of saying, no, this is not who I am, enters into that, that whole system to the place where Abraham is about to do this and he says, stop it. Because this is not the kind of God that I am. Now there is this mind-blowing verse in John chapter 8 when Jesus is in this confrontation with the Jewish leaders. Jesus is there and he says to the Jewish leaders at the end of uh, John chapter 8, he says, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. Is that crazy? What do you mean Abraham saw your day, Jesus? And he rejoiced in it. How did Abraham see his day? Well, Jesus... It was a lamb of God who took away the sins of the whole world, who carried the sacrifice, who carried the wood of the cross on his own back up the hill in the region of Moriah called Golgotha where he gave his life. He 
had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He gave his life as the Lamb of God who took away your sins and my sins and the sins of the whole world. How did God express his love? He expressed it in sending his one and only Son whom he loves. When we look at the cross, what we see is the extent to which God is willing to go to redeem us and restore us and save us and give us life with him. Life here and now. Life when John goes on and he says, like, uh, we, we don't just have this faith in a historical Jesus. We actually have a living experience with God right now. And he says, we know this because he has put his spirit inside of us. That when we receive God's love, that's every moment pressing in on us that could not get any better. When we receive this, God puts his spirit inside of us and he invites us into this crazy experience of God's love moment by moment throughout the day. That John says again and again and again, he says, yes, God is in you, but you are also in God. What in the world does that mean? You live in God. He says this several times. God lives in you through his spirit and you are in some crazy way living in the presence of God. That as you live, as you move, as you work, as you play, as you eat meals, you are living in God's presence. The love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Spirit, you are invited into that. And most of the time we don't even live in the awareness of it. Right? We don't, that's not our reality. We're just doing our stuff. And maybe, like, we'll give God, like, sort of a portion of our day, and, and that's where we experience God's love, maybe. But the rest of our life, we just don't, we, we live blinded to the reality that John says we live in God. It's like this picture of a shipwreck, right? You have a, a ship wrecked at the bottom of the sea, and you could say the ocean is in the ship. I mean, in a real way, the ocean is inside the ship. But in a much larger way, the ship is in the ocean. You have God living inside of you through his Holy Spirit if you have surrendered your life to Jesus. And not only is God living in you, but he has invited you to live in him, in the awareness of his presence and love. John says this, and it is mysterious, and it is mind-blowing, and it is beautiful. And when we receive this love, it chases fear out of our lives, fear of condemnation, fear of not being good enough, fear of not measuring up. It, it, it takes this, like, this false sort of persona that we have to present to the world, because may, I know people won't like me, but they'll like this version of myself that I present to everybody else. And it takes the fear of that. And as long as we do that, as long as we are, are not vulnerable, aren't our real selves, people can love this false self, but our real self, it remains unknown and unloved. And, and, and it's, it's a horrible place to live. We don't have to live that way. John says the fear of being known, the fear of being seen, the fear of being judged, the fear of being condemned can be collapsed. And we can be honest and ourselves, and we can know that that thing that everyone is looking for, that thing of being fully known and fully loved, it is already ours in Jesus. This is beautiful news. So, how, how do we live in this? How do we do this? A um, couple just real practical things. Because there are some practices, some things we can do to cultivate this. Uh, number one, make time 
just like make time every day to meditate and to pray. This week, what if, what if you just First John 4, 7 to 21, you just said, I'm, I'm just going to make this a part of my life. Uh, one practice is handwriting it. Just like write it down. Um, it, it connects with a part of our memory in a different way when you write it down. You can do a voice, you know, record yourself saying this or record a friend's voice. Have them read this. And then throughout the day, you just listen to it. You listen to it when you're in the car, when you have a quiet moment. And you make this, this crazy scripture a part of your life. Create reminders of God. Set alarms, timers, post-it notes. Uh, use cues, words, topics to put a physical reminder in your purse or your pocket. I mean, Jewish people did this all the time. And they had all these physical things that they would touch. And it would remind them of, of the promises of God. Like, use these things to, to make yourself aware that you are living in God's presence right here and right now. When, be reminded, and when you're reminded, stop and appreciate God's loving presence. Think about 1 John 4, right? Just, just remember this beautiful stuff. Uh, breathe a quiet thank you prayer. The early church fathers, they did these things called breath prayers. They said, you know, the Bible says pray continually. And so uh, what if, like, like this, this pressure, you know, we have this barometric pressure that is pressing in on us all the time and it allows us to fill our lungs just by sort of creating a vacuum, right? And we don't have to do anything. We don't have to earn it. We don't we just breathe in. And what if God's love was like that? What if it was just as second nature as breathing? That every time you breathe in, you just said, thank you, God. Which might sound a little weird if you're like, you know, with somebody who's not into that sort of thing, right? Thank you, God. <clears throat> Are you okay? You need the Heimlich or something? Um, <laughs> don't do it while eating. Just as you breathe, right? Thank you, God. And then to say something like, I- I'm all yours. Like this constant prayer, constant surrender. Look for others then who you can bless in simple ways. Look around to say, God, how does your love want to be completed in me as I, as I share it, as I'm sent to others, as I look at somebody in the eyes, as I smile at them, right? As I don't see them as like a machine, I see them as a human being who you have given your life for. And you just look around for others to bless. And then talk about this stuff. Talk to your missional community, your small group, your Sunday school class about what you are experiencing. God, thank you that your love is life. It is life. It is eternal life, God, to know you and to know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. God, thank you that you have invited us into your family, into your the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. God, I pray that you would just blow our minds with this this week. God, that, that all of the ideas we have about you would just, would be revealed as, as selling your goodness short. God, that you are far better than we have ever imagined. God, I pray that as we just like stare into the person of Jesus, the Son whom you loved, who willingly gave his life to show us your love. God, we pray that we would receive it, that we would surrender to it, and God, that we would know, God, that our living, our breathing, our moving, our working, it is all done in you. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen.